Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we open your word, we pray that you would speak to us of your mercy. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who took our place. And in these Lenten weeks, as we meditate on him and what he's done and what he continues to do in us through his spirit, we pray your grace. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. I want to encourage you to turn there. Last week, we did a lot of work transitioning from Judges to the New Testament and the Gospels. And we didn't have a ton of time to reflect on the sermon series as we look at some of the virtues, particularly in how they compare to some of how we think about what goes on in our world. And we noted that last week Jesus comes uh, into the city of Jerusalem on Sunday. If you want to head to the next slide, we learn that Jesus is staying in Bethany, which is a little village outside of Jerusalem. It's a couple miles away. And so he, on Sunday, makes his way on a donkey through the streets of Bethphage, uh, over the Mount of Olives and into Jerusalem. And Mark tells us that when he gets into the temple courts with this huge crowd, he kind of looks around and then leaves. And then on Monday, if we want to head to the next slide, we watch as Jesus comes in, and that green arrow reminds us where he's coming from. And Jesus comes in, and on the way, he curses a fig tree and turns over some tables. And normally, when we uh, think about the temple and Jesus overturning the table, there's a sense in which the temple system has become overgrown. It has become consumed with itself. And instead about focusing and being the focus in which God meets with his people and where heaven and earth collide, uh, the temple has sort of become about itself and consumption and and Jesus makes a point of saying that the, the life of the temple has served its purpose because he is now here. And so that's Monday, and Jesus leaves town again. And it's Tuesday now when we get to our text. And he is making his way back into the temple courts, the temple mount there. And he is confronted. And so that's where our story, that's where our text begins with verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin... They feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority 
I am doing these things. Now we're going to hit pause here because the, the Jewish leaders that we meet in the Gospels are a little different. It's sometimes hard to understand or hard to make sense of who's being referred to. And so in verse 27, we've got the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And so these are the main Jewish religious leaders living in Jerusalem. They are in charge of the sacrifices, the offering, the religious services that are taking place. And so as we noted last week, the Temple Mount is a massive place, bigger than the campus of our church, plus that corner. And so uh, Jesus didn't turn over all of the temples, but he made a point, and so word has gotten around, right? There wasn't social media. Nobody was taking pictures. You know, Peter wasn't doing the selfie Instagram, you know, check out Jesus. Uh, he wasn't doing any of that, and so word circulates naturally. And so the word gets around to the Jewish leaders and they come up as Jesus is walking around and do what really they should be doing. Right? They should be asking Jewish leaders who are claiming to be rabbis, why are you here? Right? If Sunday morning starts and it's 925 and on a morning like this, you know, Holly Gord is normally at the piano, but let's say someone had walked in and started playing uh, and they were playing sort of chopsticks and there might be a little bit of confusion like, do we know this person? What's going on here? And so someone probably would go over and say, you know, hey, by what authority? No, we wouldn't ask it that way, but we would say like, you know, tell us more about what's going on, which is really what the religious leaders are doing here. They're not aggressive. But Jesus' response will get at the heart of what they are really wanting. So Jesus asks a question to their question. And it puts them in a bind because they really aren't interested in whether or not John is divine gift, heavenly origin, which in some ways should strike us as rather odd. All right, so last week, uh, this past week, uh, Monday, we had uh, an elder meeting. We had consistory. We don't normally meet as a consistory, but we had some things that we all needed to talk to, about together as elders. And it would be fascinating, wouldn't it, if the elders of First Cutlerville got together and the question they asked when they were meeting together and talking about the things that they were talking about had nothing to do with where is the Spirit leading us? Where is the Word of God pointing us? What the authority of God, how does that play out in the local context? But instead we said, you know, what would make the congregation happy? But that, of course, is the question that Jesus asks and gets at the heart of what the the Jewish leaders are after. They're really not concerned at all at what God is doing. They don't care where John comes from. They, are they care about holding on to the authority and the power that they have over this temple system. 
and what it means for them. The relationship they have with the Roman authorities, the authority they have over the people, the, the love that they get from the crowds. They, they love these things, the prestige that it brings, the power that it brings. And so when it comes to John, they're not concerned with the origin. They really don't even talk about which one is legit. It's not focused on answering Jesus' question at all. It's about ensuring that what goes on around them remains status quo and will maybe even add to their power, to their authority, to their sense of being loved. And if we take a step back, we realize that often we end up doing the same thing. Our leaders don't ask, what's the right thing to do? They ask, what's going to get me the most votes? Business leaders wrestle with the question of, is this the right thing to do? Or will it make me the most money? People who work with people, who pour into people. We, if you do it long enough, you know what works, right? You know how to manipulate people. You know how to get them to buy in. You know how to manipulate their emotions. And, and the question is, is this the right thing to do? Or will it help me be loved? Will it help me keep control of the people in my life? In the conversations that we have with our loved ones, do we ask the question, is this the right thing to do? Is this the moral and ethical thing to do? Is this the virtuous thing to do? Or do we easily fall into the same trap that we see the Jewish leaders that we say so easy for them to do, but not so easy for us to focus on what works? What's going to give us what we really want? And Jesus' question begins to unearth. But then the story that he tells reveals that their truest love is so flawed that they will do whatever it takes, even if it means responding in wrath to hold on to it. So let's keep reading. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority, and we're going to pick it up again in 12 verse 1. So Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. He rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Now, we've got to hit pause here because there's two things going on here that we probably don't see right off the bat. The first is that if you have your sermon outline, you can see a reference to Isaiah 5. There's a text that we'll look at in a little bit, but we don't have to look at now. That is, this parable in the Old Testament, the prophet talking about how God cared for his people. And when the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders are hearing this about tenants who are 
not taking responsibility for, or maybe they're the wrong tenants in control of the vineyard, they're not hearing themselves. They're hearing the Romans. They're thinking that the vineyard is God's people. It's the temple. It's the Jewish country. And the Romans are the ones who have moved in and taken over. So they're not hearing that this parable is about them, at least for now. And as we often hear, Jesus is setting them up, right? Verse 3, but they seized him, beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Then, then the owner sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them were beat, others were killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and threw, out, threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Notice that when the tenants are confronted with the son they automatically think, well, the owner is gone, and if we get rid of the son, somehow we will take on ownership of the house. Now, this is, at first glance, foolish thinking, right? Just because you see your neighbor's house, and you go in and you kill them, you don't suddenly take over ownership of the title, right? You don't get their house. It doesn't work. And so, there's really only one other option, and that's to see that these tenants are so irrationally focused on holding on to control of the vineyard. They're so foolishly um, doing whatever they can, whatever they will do to keep things as they want, that they will kill and beat and maim and harm and do whatever it takes in order to hold on to what they really want. And of course, this is when Jesus springs the trap because he, of course, is the beloved son and all of a sudden, the, the Jewish leaders hear not Rome as tenants, but them. And that Jesus is pulling back the curtain saying, what you really love is not God. It's not knowing if something is of divine origin. It's not knowing if this is God's messenger. It's not knowing the truth of God's word and the story of salvation in John or in Jesus, what you are really after. Is you want the temple for yourself. You want the thing without God. And you will do whatever it takes. And of course, if we skip ahead, so Jesus responds, Haven't you heard this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done it and is marvelous in our eyes. And immediately after this parable, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. And then there's that little parenthetical phrase that reminds us they were afraid of the crowd. That's where we started and that's where we ended. And so they left him and went away. But they want to kill the son. 
And so this allegory, if we go to the next side, we'll go to Isaiah here. We'll go one more. Thanks. You can see up on the screen the, the God talking about his people. He says, my loved one had a vineyard on a, on a fertile hillside. And if you read through it and sort of glance through it, you can see some of the things that Jesus picks out about the, the story or the allegory of the vineyard in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus is setting these religious leaders up to realize what they are truly after is not the heart of God, One of the challenges, perhaps the most challenging thing that you and I face is that when the thing we love most has the potential of being taken from us or lost, we will respond with whatever means we can to hold on to it. We will respond not maybe with wrath that leads to killing, but we will respond with anger to the people in our lives that we love. We will become irrational about the places that we care about, whether it's a school or a church or a neighborhood or our house or about our family. Because when we have the potential or when the, the threat is there that somehow we might lose the thing that we really deeply love, we are realizing it isn't God himself, it isn't Jesus his son, it isn't being connected to him, it isn't being grafted into the vine that is Jesus, but when we lose the thing that our hearts are really after, whether it's the love of people, whether it's financial security, whether it's comfort, whatever thing it is that God has given as good and we, we lose, we see like the Jewish leaders, we look for a way to hold on to control. And the opposite of that, vice, is the virtue of patience. Now, we don't normally think about patience in this way. I want to read something to you that's maybe familiar to some of us. And if you have your outline, it's on the bottom. And it's from the Heidelberg Catechism. And the writers ask, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence, in other words, how does God's creating and holding things in his hands help us? And the first phrase is our focus. We can be patient when things go against us. When our life is spinning out of control and we feel that the things we love the most are slipping through our hands like sand or the thing that we have devoted our life to is all of a sudden disappearing or being undermined or, 
or our reputation is being attacked in ways that are not fair and we are confronted by the thing, the, the reality that maybe we have loved this more than God, the catechism reminds us that patience is the virtue that connects us to God. Because things will go against us. And patience is settling ourselves into this place, knowing that when things turn and they don't feel quite right, God the Creator is still in control. And Jesus gives us the reason that we can find hope in that. In the passage he points to after the parable. Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected. Though the life around us will fall, the things around us will crumble, the tension in our lives will unseat us, though that stone is rejected, it will become the cornerstone, the thing upon which everything else can get built. It will be the thing upon which all else, all of God's plans moving forward will find their footing. And not the Lord will do this, but the Lord has done this. It is easy to be thankful when things go well, It is much more difficult to be patient when things go against us. And a passage like this puts in front of us and confronts us with the reality that it is far too easy to be like those who respond in wrath and tight control. Much more difficult to be patient. Let's pray. God, some of us here this morning are are in a place where we're thankful because things are going well. And so fill our hearts with gratitude and, and root us even more firmly in the place that all good gifts come from the Father, the Father's hand. But others of us, we're maybe in the middle of it or we can see it coming or we've just come out of it where things have gone against us and we need help to be patient. We need help to to be okay being out of control. We need help being having our feet on a firm foundation when all else around us is like a hurricane blast. And so as we reflect on the life of Jesus, on the life he gives, and that it means that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, may your spirit help us to be patient. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to invite our worship choir to come back up and help lead us in our song of response.